Can you imagine being betrayed by family? I mean, not just family, but the family you choose. We all have blood relatives, those who are family by default, but then there are those we've chosen to be our family. That best friend that is just like a sister or brother, or that coworker turned bestie that we would do anything for, or that man or woman who we choose to love and cherish until death do us part, along with their children and extended family that becomes a packaged deal. But what happens when that chosen family becomes your mortal enemy? That's what today's story touches on. Welcome to The Black Rose, a Black true crime podcast. And I'm your host, Ty Williams. This is episode three, when your family is worse than your enemies. All units information, ever has a possible homicide at 6901 Broadway. Welcome back to The Black Rose, a Black True Crime Podcast, and I'm your host, Ty Williams. Since last encountering each other, I hope you all have been indulging in self-care, self-awareness, and self-love, always taking care of you and those you love, and remembering to first pour into yourselves so that you may pour into others. These are my intentions for you. I just want to say thank you for tuning in. I have not posted in such a long time due to life. So many things have transpired over the last couple of months and I am newly committed and ready to get down. Let's get into it. Um, I wanted to start to do something new on my podcast, which is to have a black girl magic moment, black boy joy moment. So I will give you uh black women and men um in our history that have done um amazing things and have um contributed to our lives in a really awesome way so today's black girl magic moment it is going to go to miss daisy bates Daisy Gatson Bates was born in 1914 in Huddock, Arkansas. She died in November 4th of 1999 in Little Rock, Arkansas. Daisy Bates was an American journalist and civil rights activist who withstood economic, legal, and physical intimidation to champion racial equality, most notably in the integration of public schools in Little Rock, Arkansas. As a public, and highly vocal supporter of many of the programs of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. Bates was selected in 1952 to serve as president of the State 
Conference of the Organization's Arkansas Branch. After the U.S. Supreme Court deemed segregation unconstitutional in 1954, she led the NAACP's protest against the Little Rock School Board's plan for slow integration of the public schools and pressed instead for immediate integration. She personally began taking black children to white public schools, accompanied by newspaper photographers who recorded each instance when the children were refused admission. This intense pressure induced the school board to announce its plan to commence desegregation at Central High School in September 1957. Bates and nine of the black students who were chosen to enroll at the high school withstood attempts at intimidation by the white opposition in Little Rock, which included rallies, legal actions, threats, and acts of violence. Several attempts at integration failed, and the black students were not allowed to enter the school despite a court order. Finally, on September 25th, the day after President Dwight D. Eisenhower ordered all Arkansas National Guard units and 1,000 paratroopers to enforce integration of the school, Bates and the students were escorted safely into the school. She continued to be an advocate for the students throughout their time at the school. We wanna say thank you, Ms. Daisy Bates. We thank you for your contributions and courage that you have bestowed to our culture, our people, and the world. You are major, you are magical. Now it's time for our story. All right, so today's story is about a man by the name of Albert Thomas. And this story is truly, truly the definition of betrayal to its utmost. Um, it's just really sad. So I just want to forewarn you um, and prepare you for the details to come ahead. So let's get started. So on November 4th, 2009, Don Moore arrives at work, ready to start his day as any other. Don is the terminal manager at KLLM Transport Services Trucking Company, located in Fontana, California. Don went about checking his daily delivery report and GPS logs when he realized one of his employees had not made his deliveries that morning. That employee was Albert Thomas, who was dependable and always on time. Albert not showing up or being late to an appointment was not him at all. So this prompted Don to trace his location by using the Qualcomm GPS system that will give Don Albert's truck location as well as start up and end times. Don was surprised to see that Albert's truck had not been started or moved all day. This indicated to Don that something was definitely wrong. Don then sent Albert's coworker, Richard Segrist, to Moreno Valley, California, where Albert's GPS pinged his location. Albert's truck was in a vacant lot about a quarter of a mile from his home. Richard saw Albert's truck parked on the corner with the driver's side door open. Richard stopped 
and called out Albert's name a few times, but got no response. So Richard climbed up the first few steps and looked over the seat, where he saw Albert in the cab of the truck, face down with both knees under him. He was shot twice in the back and once in the head with a 38 caliber handgun. Who did this and why? Well, you'll have to listen to get the answer to those questions. This is the story of the murder of Albert Thomas. Albert Thomas was born August 20th, 1953 in Hollandale, Mississippi. He didn't have much growing up, but as a young man, he worked hard on school, in school rather, and made money on the side to help his family by picking cotton and other odd jobs. He graduated from Rolling Fork High School in 1974. He later went on to marry his high school sweetheart and they had a daughter and a son. Albert supported his family by becoming a factory worker, then later becoming a truck driver. Katina, his daughter, stated that Albert was a very good father and provider, but the long bouts of time on the road put a strain on the marriage and Albert and his wife divorced after many years together. So in 1999, after years of being alone, fate would bring Lorraine Allison Hunter back into his life. They had met many years back when both of them were both in high school together. Both went on to get married and have families, but Albert ran into Lorraine on her visit back home from California. Lorraine had her share of hardship and tragedy. By the time she was married, truck driver Alan Brown, her first husband, she was single with two boys. The couple was together for 10 years, but their relationship had many ups and downs. During one of the couple's breakups, Lorraine became pregnant and gave birth in 1993 to a little girl she named Brianna Lachanae Hunter. Alan's sister, Bobby Davis, went on to say how when Lorraine and Alan brought baby Brianna to meet her for the first time, she could clearly see the baby did not belong to her brother. In the past, her brother had called her upset about Lorraine's infidelities. He always felt she was cheating on him, but her brother insisted that this was his baby. So she went on to pretend all was well for the sake of her brother's happiness. Then one fateful night, while Lorraine and Alan were getting in their car after having dinner that night, the car would not start. Alan got out, popped the hood, and began to work on the car. As Lorraine sat in the passenger seat, an armed assailant walked up and shot Alan to rob him. Alan did not survive and no arrests were made. Lorraine said she could not identify the assailant. Now Lorraine received $312,000 in life insurance from her husband Alan's death. The case is still unsolved. Now while on her visit to Mississippi, Lorraine and Albert rekindled their friendship and in fact became engaged. Natisha Brown, Lorraine's friend, recounted how Lorraine came back from her trip with a big ring and a big smile. Natisha met Lorraine after Alan's death. 
Lorraine lived with Natisha's parents after they were told by Lorraine that all her money and assets were seized by the IRS, including the insurance payout. With all her money gone and her house in foreclosure, she needed a place to stay for her and her daughter. Natisha's parents provided that roof over their heads for two years, paying for all her food, clothing, and transportation. Lorraine never spoke about her first husband to Natisha or her parents. They just thought they were helping someone in need. Meanwhile, Albert decided to pack up and move to California to be with his new wife and stepdaughter. Things seemed good at first. Albert was working for a new trucking company and Lorraine was her church's treasurer. She attended church twice a week faithfully. Quentin Antoine, Brianna's ex-boyfriend, recounted how sweet and pure Lorraine seemed to be. He said she would make cookies and would keep her door open to him and Brianna's friends. Lorraine's sister and her sister's daughter, Shanice, lived right down the street. Brianna and Shanice were very close. They were the same age, but very different. Brianna was quiet, reserved. Shanice, she was loud and wild. It seemed to be a happy family situation, but things were about to change. Don Moore said Albert seemed to have newfound money troubles. He started to come to Don monthly, asking for advancements on his pay. He set up a bin with his name on it in the employee lunchroom to collect aluminum cans for money. He also collected the dirty bath towels from the truckers and took them home to launder for extra money as well. He also had a night job at an auto parts store. He was working sun up and sun down. But where was all his money going, man? See, Lorraine didn't work. In fact, Bobby Davis, Alan's sister, which is Lorraine's first husband, says she never worked. Bobby said Lorraine could cook and could bake very well, and she could have made a decent penny from doing so. But she didn't. She never had a job. She never had a job that she would get up for and stay all day. That's just something she didn't want to do. Her first husband took care of her. Natisha's parents took care of her, and now Albert was taking care of her as well. Lorraine liked a good life. She liked to have the best cars, the latest fashions for her and her daughter, but she didn't want to lift a damn finger. She didn't want to help or work to contribute to the household at all. That's where Albert's money was going. Albert was drowning, drowning so far into debt that he wanted to leave and go back to Mississippi where things didn't seem as hard. That also meant leaving Lorraine. Oh well, what would you do in his position? Here you are in a new state with your new wife. Things are tight when it comes to finances because your wife, who doesn't work, who doesn't want to contribute to the household, is draining you dry, sucking your very life force. It's pretty sad. Well, he was thinking about going back, which meant leaving her. He was getting tired of it. He was tired of working his fingers to the bone. He had had enough, okay? 
Lorraine could feel the tension and became aware that Albert wanted to leave. On the morning Richard Segrest, Albert's co-worker, found him, Richard called 911 and Detective Ken Patterson was on the scene. The first thing he thought was, this must be a robbery. And the way he was found could have definitely been a robbery. Nothing notable. However, something was from not found in the truck. The gun. And no shell casings were found at the scene. So that indicated either the offender was meticulous in his cleanup or he used a revolver. During that time, Don was becoming worried. So were Lorraine and Brianna. They had called Albert's employer and informed him that he had not come home the previous evening and that they were looking for him too. Detective Patterson made his way over to Albert and Lorraine's home to inform them of Albert's passing. But Lorraine and Brianna were visibly shaken and upset. Detective Patterson asked them if Albert had any enemies or if they knew of anyone who would want to hurt him. They explained that no one would ever want to hurt him. They had only positive things to say about Albert. Lorraine did tell Detective Patterson, though, that her church money bag was gone. It held $4,600. She thought that Albert might have picked it up by mistake when he left out the previous day for work. That made Patterson lean more towards the theory of robbery. Maybe someone robbed him and took that money bag with them. Detective Patterson then asked if Lorraine knew of any life insurances that Albert might have had. She told him that she was not aware of them, if he did have any. Patterson then went on to interview Don Moore, Albert's boss, to ask him if he had any helpful information regarding Albert's murder. Moore stated that he knew Albert had money troubles, but he was a good man and doesn't know who could have possibly done this to him. He did say that maybe he borrowed money from someone and didn't pay the person back. When asked if Lorraine had contacted him about Albert, Moore went on to say that, yeah, the day after his murder, she inquired about Albert's life insurance policies. He informed her that Albert had a $250,000 policy that would double if he was murdered. So she lied. I mean, she lied directly to his face, thought Detective Patterson. He then went back to confront Lorraine. He asked her why she lied about knowing about the policies. Lorraine told him she had just forgotten. Patterson called bullshit. He asked her if she would agree to take a polygraph exam. And she agreed. So they set a time and a date for Patterson to pick her up to go to the station for the test. But when that day came, Patterson went to Lorraine and Albert's house to pick her up, but she did not answer the door, nor did she answer his phone calls. She disappeared into thin air. Then out of nowhere, Patterson received a cease and desist notice from Lorraine's lawyer, prohibiting him from contacting Lorraine. <laughs> wow. If Patterson had no inclination of suspicion of her, he sure as hell did now. Unfortunately, the case went cold for two whole years. Then as fate would have it, on October 2011, 23 months after Albert's murder, Patterson receives a phone call from a deputy that arrested a person for shoplifting. 
which by the way is a ticketable offense. I mean, it's not usually an offense that you get caught, get locked up. No, you usually might be taken to the station, get a ticket and let go. Nonetheless, without hesitation, this young woman had a story to tell and it was a hell of a story. Who is this woman, you ask? The woman in question was named Shanice Hunter, Albert's wife, Lorraine's niece. Shanice went on to tell how Lorraine and her daughter, Brianna, were responsible for Albert's murder. And here's how it all went down. So Shanice gets nabbed for shoplifting. And for whatever reason, she decides to tell detectives who murdered Albert Thomas almost two years prior. She goes on to explain that one day she happened to come into Lorraine and Brianna's home and they hadn't noticed her come in. But she heard them, overheard them speaking really suspiciously. And she could hear Lorraine say, you got to do it. He's gonna leave. We're not gonna be able to buy the things we wanna buy. We're not gonna have the house that we live in. We're not gonna have anything. And then she heard Brianna say, do we really have to do this? And as she mumbled those words, they both looked up and they noticed Shanice was there. And as she looked at the two, she saw Brianna with a gun in her hand. But Lorraine quickly snapped and asked her to get out. So next thing you know, the day later after seeing the the two, Shanice gets a phone call from Brianna. She's highly upset. She's yelling and screaming, telling Shanice she needs to come pick her up. She asks where she is. She jumps in the car. She picks them up. She pulls up. Lorraine jumps in the car first, then Brianna, and they tell her, go, 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 go. So what Lorraine had done, she decided that she rather kill Albert for his life insurance money than to have him leave and go back to Mississippi and then have to figure out things for herself, like get a damn job, pay her own bills, take care of herself and her daughter, but that was too much like right for her. She had been so used to men taking care of her over and over again. She was a user, she was an abuser, but on the outside, she looked like the perfect mom, perfect wife. She went to church, she was the church treasurer, but she wasn't a good steward over her own finances. She bled Albert dry, made his life miserable, He had to work almost 20 hours a day. He had a truck driving driving job. He also worked at an auto parts shop. So he was working during the day, working during the night, grabbing a few hours here and there to sleep. He even was washing the dirty towels from his, his coworkers just to make ends meet. He's collecting cans. That's not what a happy life looks like. That's not what a happy marriage looks like. In marriage, you're supposed to be a part, you know, a partnership. 
Everyone is supposed to bring 100%. Each person. Not 50-50. 100%. I think a lot of people get that misconstrued. Like, if I only bring half, and you only bring half, and I don't mean monetary, like, you know, money or um, materialistic things. I'm just saying oneself bringing your whole self into the relationship being a partner be being an addition to a complementary partner meaning whatever one lacks you make up in but anyway i digress that's a whole nother show but that's not the type of part partner that she was she just made him miserable and he had had enough and she realized he had enough so what she did was she came up this with this whole plan. She, now, Miss Go to Church every Sunday, Miss Church Treasurer goes to one of her church member friends' home and she realizes that the elderly person has a gun of her own that she keeps in a drawer. And she goes over to this woman's home under the guise of just saying hi, checking in on her, and she sneaks in the woman's house and grabs that 38 caliber gun and she takes it home with her. And that's the night that Shanice heard them, overheard them speaking about what they were gonna do. That gun that Brianna held in her hand was the gun that Lorraine had taken from her friend's home. So they came up with the plan that somehow, some way, what he least expected it that Lorraine would shoot him. Now, Albert was such a good man that even though he was going through all of this and he was unhappy and he didn't really want to stay in California, he loved Brianna. Everyone said, including Brianna, that he was a doting father. Even though that wasn't her biological father, he treated her as though he was and that she was his. And on that particular night of his death, he had gotten Brianna a sweatshirt that he had gotten on the road while driving his truck and he wanted to give it to her. Now, he would bring his big rig home. His truck would be home maybe about a quarter of a mile away in a vacant lot near the house. You know, these trucks are pretty big, 18 wheelers, they need space. So of course he didn't have it parked on his in front of his home so it was about a block away when it came to walking distance and on that particular night uh Lorraine she comes up with the whole notion you know what let's go for a walk let's just get out the house get some air me and Brianna he's like you know what that's a good idea by the way I have something for you Brianna I got you this nice sweatshirt that I want to you know give to you so the three go out walking along, having a nice stroll, talking. They get up to the truck. And I'm sure if most of you have seen the inside, you know how they have like a uh, sleeper cab where um, the truck driver might sleep um, for a couple of hours um, when he's not driving, maybe at a rest stop or so. Um, that's where the sweatshirt was. So Albert gets in first. He's making his way back to the sleeper cab. Then Brianna gets in. She gets in the driver's side. 
Then Lorraine gets in and she's in the passenger side. So they're just sitting there waiting for Albert. He's like, hold on, let me see. I know it's back here somewhere. So he crouches down, he's on his knees and he's searching, he's searching. And while his back is turned to his wife and his stepdaughter, to who he loved the most, to the two that were his family, his chosen family, that he vowed to take care of, love, and protect. Lorraine shoots him twice in the back, once in his head. He's already on his knees and he drops to his knees, knees under him. He's dead instantly. Holding the sweatshirt. They jump out and that's when Shanice receives that call for them to come for her to come get them. They leave the scene. Lorraine's sneaky ass makes it back to her church member friend's home and puts the gun back where it was. Then they go home, sleep as if nothing happened. And then the de- next day is when uh, Don Moore, his boss and his coworker find out what his fate was. All of this for money. All of this because she didn't want to have to take care of herself. She didn't love him. She loved what he could do for her and what she could do, what he could do for her daughter. Now let's go back to her first husband. If you can recall, um, the, the part when I explained how her first husband was shot while they were coming out from having dinner that night. They get in the car, it doesn't work, so he's going out to look under the hood and someone comes out and shoots him. Well, no one was able to corroborate Lorraine's story. And Alan's sister always said, it doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense that an assailant would come up, shoot, say it's a, a robbery, shoot one individual, leaving the other individual who could see everything, leaving them alive when they could possibly ID them. And think about it as well, her sitting in the driver, no, I'm sorry, the passenger side seat. And even with the hood up, you're going to be able to see if there's some type of back and forth, a tussle, of course, you hear something. You're looking out the window like, hey, what's going on? You're going to see. You're going to be able to see, say, if the person is uh, black, white, uh, Hispanic, uh, tall, short, uh, big, thin. She had nothing. She had nothing. She could give the, the detectives no information, no identification, no lead. Now, what do you think? If she was able to do this to Albert, don't you think she would be able to do this to Alan? But that case has yet to be solved. And his family, Alan's family, he had children other than the one he so-called had with Lorraine. They have no justice. 
And think of how sickening Lorraine as an individual must be. If you go online, you can actually look on the um, Oxygen True Crime website and you can see pictures of Lorraine, you can see pictures of Alan, you can see pictures of Brianna. This little girl looks nothing like either one of them. And that's fine, you don't have to look like your mother. But mother's baby, father's maybe. And Alan was just not a maybe. He was non-existent. That baby wasn't his. And his sister even went on to say when she was interviewed, she said, listen, we got a trait in our family. And if you don't have big eyes, she said, something's wrong. You ain't one of us. (laughs) Now, we know. We know how science works, genetics works. You don't necessarily have to look, you know, identical to a family member, even your immediate uh, parents. But she, Brianna meaning, was so fair, 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 like very, very, very light skin, really fine, silky hair, really small almond shaped eyes, dainty features. And when you look at Alan and you look at Lorraine, you know that's not his child, but that has never, ever, ever been proven. But Alan's family believes that to be true. My uh, my opinion is that Brianna is not his as well. But again, I digress. That's another story. And the focus today is on Albert. How can someone who vowed to love and cherish an individual, then kill them in cold blood for money. How sad is is it that the people that you trust the most or should be able to depend and trust on are the ones that do you the most harm? With family like that, who needs enemies? It's just pure evil. The epitome of pure evil and betrayal. So what goes on to happen is that um, after Shanice gave her story to detectives, and this is the funny, this is the kicker with this whole thing. Shanice gave up all this information because her ass got caught shoplifting. (laughs) Okay, I'm not justifying holding on to pertinent information uh, to only use it when it then serves you, but if I have the answers or information that would lead to a killer and solve a murder, I think I would save that information for when I'm in a more um, significant amount of trouble. <laughs> shoplifting? Giving up bodies for shoplifting? <laughs> nah. Uh, doesn't make sense. But that's just me. That's just me. Um, well, you'll be happy to know that, that Lorraine did not get away with this murder. Which is the most important thing. Nor did nor did um, Brianna, which is 
So sad because what type of mother enlists the help of her child to murder someone? And not only murder someone, but murder someone who is a father figure, who Brianna was to say was her father. Like, not just a stepfather felt like that was her father, but she felt that her allegiance and loyalty to her mother outweighed the love that she had for Albert. That's really, really sad. And shame on Lorraine for... It's one one thing to put your life in harm's way and to throw your life away, but to do that to your child, it takes a, it takes a special asshole to do something like that. And me personally, if I was Brianna, I would want nothing else to do with her ever. But that's just me. We love our parents. We love them no matter what they do sometimes, but it's just really sad. Well, both of them were charged with first degree murder, also conspiracy to commit murder. And then Lorraine was charged with the special circumstances, alleging that the murder was committed while lying in wait. And then also that she did it for financial gain. And while waiting trial, Lorraine tried hiring a hitman to kill her niece. This fool goes on after she is incarcerated. She feels some type of way about Shanice giving her up. So she then calls a gentleman whose name has never been um, in any type of article or anything online that I've been able to find, but she calls this individual and you can hear the conversation now we all know even those who are not involved in life in a life of crime or deal with jailhouse studs we know that these phone calls are recorded i think we all know that even if you don't know someone in jail you've seen television shows you know these phone calls are recorded idiot and what does she do she calls someone and tries to get this person to kill Shanice. And she's speaking in code almost. Uh, you can go online and, and find um, the actual recording. Or if you really would like to see um, a show, if you have ID Channel um, or Discovery, ID Discovery, um, Murder Lies Here has a show on Albert uh, Thomas. Um, what was the name of the show? What was it entitled? It was, I believe, A Heavy Burden was the name of it. And it will just shock you the way things went down. After she called this gentleman who seemed to be in agreement, she then called her other niece, her other niece, another family member, another young lady that has their whole life ahead of them you're trying to get this person involved with your shit as well she tries to get her niece to look up Shanice's information on Facebook and she wants to know um, how her name is spelled on Facebook she's trying to get pictures of Shanice to the individual that she's trying to hire a, you know to, to kill Shanice 
he needs pictures. Now she's in jail, so uh, she really can't get a hold on, you know, hold onto the pictures herself. So she enlisted the help of her niece, her other niece, to maybe possibly pull the photos off of Facebook and to send those photos with a letter. And in the letter, the letter was to be composed to mislead anyone possibly reading the letter, which wasn't compelling. She's an idiot in every way, shape and form. Everything she tried was just idiotic. But she tells Denise on the recorded line, hey, yeah, look up her name on uh, Facebook. And she's asking the niece to um, read back to her how her niece's name is spelled on Facebook and she's like yeah 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 so give me a couple pictures and then send me a letter that's saying something like hey auntie just wanted to send a few pics of you know you and I mean of myself and Shanice like we're doing good we're thinking about you we're holding it down she would send those pictures to Lorraine and then Lorraine would then get the pictures to her assassin basically her hitman well idiot everything was intercepted the phone call the letters all intercepted and this just added to her list of charges thank god that ass will be in jail for a lifetime um i'm gonna go on to read you the rest of the charges so then um she ends up pleading guilty. Well, Lorraine was sentenced to death. She was sentenced to death in December of 2017 after a judge agreed with the jury's recommendation to do so. So even the jury was like, bitch, you're going straight to hell with gasoline drawers on. You don't need to do life. Your life needs to be taken from you just like you took it from Albert and possibly from Alan which I believe is no possibility. It's an actuality. I feel she did that. And after pleading guilty to three counts of attempted murder and one count of voluntary manslaughter in connection with the slaying of Albert, Brianna was sentenced to 18 years and four months in state prison. Now, I'll tell you how I feel about that. I believe 18 years is sufficient. Was she wrong? Absolutely. Was she manipulated? Absolutely. And you have to remember at the time, she was still a child. She was 16 years old. Here it is, you've been with your mother your whole life. It's always been you two. Your mother has always taken care of you, giving you the best of everything. She was, Lorraine was everything to her daughter and Lorraine used that to her benefit. She knew exactly what she would do. She knew exactly how much Brianna loved her and would do anything for her. So I, I believe the 18 years are sufficient. I feel as though that gives her a chance to have a, a, a life, to be able to lament on what she has done. I'm sure there will be a quickening when it comes to her mentality of how, mom, you're no damn good. I love you, but sh- I have to love you from, from a distance. And I hope even afterwards when she gets out that I really don't want her visiting her mom. I don't really want her writing her mom, but that's just me. So now at this current time, um, 
She is 26 years old. She's currently incarcerated at Central California Women's Facility, and she'll be eligible for parole in June of 2026. So she has three, three more years to go, and she'll be eligible for parole. In March 2019, California Governor Gavin Newsom issued a moratorium on capital punishment, suspending executions in the state for the time being. Lorraine is now 64 and incarcerated at Central California Women's Facility, the same penitentiary as her daughter. So guess what that means? This fool escaped the death penalty. She'll be doing life. Well, Lorraine, if you could hear me, I would tell you this. There is a special place in hell for you. You have to pay for your sins and what you do. Life's a bitch and karma is her sister. And them bitches both like getting paid. So, Lorraine, I wish you nothing but bad dreams, heartache, and misery. And Brianna, if I could speak to you one-on-one or if you could hear me, I would tell you this. It's one thing to love your mother or your father, a husband, boyfriend, but you are still endowed with knowing right from wrong. And this was definitely a wrong that you should have seen. Even at 16 years old, you knew better. And that's why you had to pay with those those 18 years. This was really a sad story. And I do these stories because I don't feel as though in our community, in the Black community and people of color's communities that we get these stories aren't highlighted like others are. And we don't hear of these stories in the news. We don't see these faces on TV. And it hurts, and it hurts families that feel that their family and love, family members and loved ones are forgotten. And we can't forget. If it was you or yours, you wouldn't want to forget. So, when I think about how, and this is weird, but I kind of think about this after every story. If I wanted to get away with this murder, uh, it's a couple things I just would not have done. I know it seems kind of morbid, but just take a minute and hear me out. So your husband has life insurance that you want to get your hands on. You want him out of the picture. Number one, why why are you calling the day after his murder to inquire about life insurance policies? And strike one. Strike two, why are you enlisting the help of your juvenile daughter, your 16-year-old daughter? That's strike two. Strike three, why are you getting a gun from a person who's associated with you by friendship? It could be a work colleague. That's dumb. There's just so many things that went wrong and she just didn't think through. 
And then you're having these conversations, you think, in the privacy of your own home. But you got your door open, people coming and going. Then you got somebody walking in here and when you, hearing your conversation about killing somebody. You you really aren't thinking. But that's just me. I don't know. But I wonder what your opinion is. I am going to list a poll on this episode and I am asking you for your review on this story and your feedback um I really 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 feel bad for Albert's family and I feel as though he just wanted to be happy he wanted to be um in a loving relationship he wanted a second chance at love and he put himself out there, he relocated, he worked hard. And this woman, she was a piece of shit and didn't deserve it. Really, really sad. Well, that is the end of our, our episode. Um, I wanna thank you for tuning in. You are so appreciated and you are loves. Um, and please remember to hold each other down so we can't be held back. One mighty fist, one mighty blow. Until the next time, stay up, stay woke. Thanks again. I'm Ty Williams signing off. And I want to give a special shout out to Phil Thompson of Fillmore Beats for my theme music. Thank you, Phil. Love you always, bro. Um, If you ever need me, I'm there like you. There for me. But... Thank you guys for listening and tuning in. I hope to um, meet up with you again for episode four coming to you next Tuesday. Well, that's it for now. This is Ty signing off. Good night.